We're going to be reading from Revelation chapter 14 and Revelation chapter 15. In Revelation 14, we'll be reading verses 1 to 5. And in Revelation 15, verses 1 to 4. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. And with him, 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures, and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. That is Revelation 14, 1 to 5, and now Revelation 15, 1 to 4. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. God, I thank you for your word that you revealed to us. God, I pray that you'd help us to submit our hearts and surrender to the authority of your word and of your gospel. God, help us. Give us wisdom today. Give us ears to hear and hearts that, God, that will bend to your will. I pray that you would bless, God, in the public preaching of your truth and of your word. God, I pray that it would change us, that we would be different people as we walk out of here today than we were when we walked in, that we would draw closer to you, that we would be, walk more in your holiness and righteousness, that we would be more sanctified, that we would be more educated, God, in your word, that we would know it and love it better. God, I pray you bless Paul as he preaches. God, strengthen him. Give him peace, God, and calm and courage and bravery as he preaches the truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're visiting with us, as I say, we are in the middle of the book of Revelation, and uh, it has been a great journey. We are uh, looking at the book not to try and prove one particular eschatological view against, over and against another. We're trying to look at the book of how is it meant to encourage the people of God. First and foremost, it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And as I think about it, it's a revelation of the reigning, exalted Jesus Christ. If the book of Acts is a revelation of the exalted Christ as he continues to reign and rule his church, the book of Revelation is a, a picture of the exalted Christ as he reigns over the world and over the nations. 
And so first and foremost, uh, one of the things that we've been talking about is how it reveals Christ to us. And you would have mentioned, you would have heard a few times a reference to the Lamb. Christ is most frequently referred to as the Lamb in the book of Revelation, which is full of uh, sim symbolism and rich imagery for us to understand his saving work on our behalf. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you know that uh, chapters 13 have been difficult chapters. Actually, a lot of Revelation has been difficult, but 12 and 13 have been particularly difficult as we've been considering the unholy trinity, the dragon, the beast from the sea, and the beast from the land. Uh, we get a sense of how the people of God are in tough because the dragon has been thrown down and he's angry and he sets out to make war against the people of God and he does it precisely through the beast that comes from the sea and the beast that comes from the land. And it helps us have a realistic picture of the world in which we live and gives us an ability to understand why things are the way that we are. Been trying to remind us again and again that Revelation gives us a, a perspective of earth from heaven. It's like it peels back for us the material reality in which we're surrounded and, and gives us actually a vision of what's going on behind the scene. Because what we see is not all that is going on. There's a world of fascinating spiritual dynamic that is guiding and directing and even warring in the world in which we live. I was thinking about this and trying to, um, uh, again, look for different ways to give us an eye to understand that. And I was reflecting on the book of 2 Kings and an account with a man, Elisha, one of the prophets of God, and how Elisha was being hounded by a particular king. And the king was after him to take his life. And Elisha and his servant were holed up in a particular town or a particular uh, city. And um, they found themselves surrounded by an army. And the, the account is recorded in the book of 2 Kings. And it goes this way. It says, When the servant of the man of God rose early and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Don't be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elijah prayed and said, O oh Lord, please open the eyes of this servant so that he may see. So the Lord opened, his eyes, or opened the eyes of the young man. And he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You see, it's an illustration that the people of God and the servants of God are never outnumbered. And as we come to a particular book like um, Revelation, what I think John is trying to do and what he's praying is he's praying concerning the church that's going, undergoing such great stress and great trials as it is confronted with the dragon and these two beasts. And as we make our way through the world, it's like John through God is wanting us to, and he's praying, Lord, open their eyes so that it may see the great hosts that you have surrounded with them so that they will endure and succeed. We come to Revelation chapter 14, and it's part of a, a, a group of chapters, I think, chapter 12, 13, and 14. It's a mini sort of uh, expanse of the whole um, uh, last days. It begins with the exaltation of Christ. I think it's in cha uh, verse 3 or verse 5 of, of chapter 12, and it ends with the coming of Christ again uh, as we describe the lot of the redeemed and the lot of those who take the mark of the beast. And so chapter 14 is divided really into two sections. Verses 1 to 5, and I'll include a few references in, uh, from chapter 15, verses 1 to 4. But verses 1 to 5 describe the redeemed, the company of God, the 144,000. And then chapter 6 to chapter 20 describe what will happen to the dragon and those who follow the dragon. 
as they are cast into everlasting torment. And so we cover this vast amount of space in the course of uh, three chapters, chapter 12, 13, and 14. Uh, chapter 14, verses 1 to 5, is also intended as a counterpoint. If you're here with us last week, we ended by looking at um, uh, verses 16 to 18 of uh, chapter 13, where we heard about the mark of the beast, that all those who followed the beast, all those who worshipped the dragon were marked. But we understood that there was a whole company that wasn't marked because those were the ones that were up for persecution. Well, chapter 14, verses 1 to 5 now describes that other group. And it reminds us that there are only two humanities. Uh, there are only two groups within humanity, if you want to put it another way. There are those who are marked and characterized by following after the beast. And there are those who are marked and characterized by following after the lamb. And as I mentioned last week, I don't believe those are literal marks. They are spiritual marks. As Paul writes in the book of uh, Timothy, he says, The Lord knows those who are his. Somehow those who follow the beast are marked on their forehead and on their right hand. Those who follow Christ are sealed and marked with the name of the Lamb and the name of God on their forehead. Symbols of peoples that are characterized by either following the Lamb or following the dragon. As we've been in this particular text in chapter 14, uh, there's a phrase that is used again and again in Revelation. It's a, it's a helpful text it's a, or phrase. It's a marked text. Then I looked or behold... And we have a number of those in actually chapter 14 and 15. But then I looked and behold, what, what did he see? He saw uh, over there, he sees Mount Zion and over Mount Zion stood the Lamb. There are many clues in this text, particularly in chapter 14, that John is not wanting us to understand this literally. When he says, behold, I saw a Lamb standing over Mount Zion, he didn't see a literal Lamb. It's not unlike John the Baptist when he was baptizing and all of a sudden he saw Jesus walking towards him. The man, Jesus, in human flesh. And as Jesus is walking to him, what does he say? He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What John saw was symbolized in the person of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John is not actually, I believe, seeing a lamb here. But he's seeing the risen, exalted Christ whose character or his work is summarized or symbolized as the lamb. It's also meant to be a foil or a counterpoint to the lamb, the fake lamb in chapter 13 verse 11. The deceptive false prophet who appears with two horns like a lamb. This is the lamb of Revelation chapter 5. I don't know about you, but I was caught off guard by this phrase that it says that, Behold the Lamb standing. There he stood, or there stood the Lamb with mount, or, or on the mount with the 144,000. Stood the Lamb. The references to the exalted Christ and risen Christ that we see in the text are always he's seated. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. When he, he is exalted, he goes up and he sits down at the right hand of the Father. When his high priestly work is done, he sits down at the right hand of the Father. His work is done. His work is finished. It's accomplished. He sits down. So why do we see him standing here? There's only one other reference to um, Christ standing. And that's in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7. And it's the first martyr of the Christian church, Stephen. And as the stones begin to batter his body... The 
Stephen looks up full of the Holy Spirit looking into heaven and he saw the glory of God and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. I think there is some kind of symbolism there, some kind of a sense that, that Jesus is up from his throne and he's looking down and he's aware and he's peering down and he's watching and he knows what's going on and he's in control and he's reigning. I think there's some sense of just that, like he's got up to have a look. But I think there's a, a, a fuller understanding of this. At the end of chapter 12, verse 17, after the dragon has been cast out of heaven, it says that he stood by the sand of the sea. That is a symbol of him standing over the nations of those who, who are following him. In uh, Revelation chapter 28, he's commanding the nations of the world who appear as the sand of the sea. And so Satan is on earth standing over the nations of the world that are following him. Christ is in heaven, and I think most of this scene takes place in heaven, standing on Mount Zion. Here is, is this symbol of one standing over those whom he has authority, and of the Lamb standing over those who he has authority. There's a great sense of protection and ownership. You know, you, you get a sense of when somebody is standing over something, they're protecting it, they're guarding it, they're, they're keeping things away from it. And that's part of the, the, the picture that I have of Christ as he's standing over Mount Zion. He's protecting us, he's guarding us, he knows who are in his care and in his control. He's standing in Mount Zion. In the Old Testament, Mount Zion referred to the city of Jerusalem. It referred to the people or the inhabitants of Jerusalem. It at one point referred to all of the people of Jerusalem. I think it's in part a reference to um, Psalm 2, which is a psalm that's one of the most quoted psalms in all of the New Testament, where um, the nations rage and they mock, but God has set his king over the nations. I think Mount Zion is also a place which the Bible describes again and again as a place out of which deliverance comes. When we come to the New Testament, there's only one other reference to the heavenly Mount Zion, and that's in Hebrews chapter 12, where the people of God, as we worship today, we come to the heavenly Mount Zion. I think it's a, the heavenly people of God, the heavenly city. All of that is subsumed in this word, Mount Zion. So when Jesus is standing, the Lamb is standing over Mount Zion. It is the people of God. It is the city of God, the new Jerusalem. It is Christ reigning in heaven. Who are the 144,000? We've looked at this already. Symbol or statistic? I think it's a symbol. I think the 144,000 is the picture of all of the followers of God. All of the people of God, as opposed to over against all of the followers of the Lamb. We Remember, we came back to uh, chapter 7 of Revelation, where we were first introduced to the 144,000. And there, we also described it as a symbolic way of referring to all of the company of God's people. Because after he hears the number, I think it's in verse 9, then John turns and he says, And I saw this vast multitude that nobody could count. He heard 144. He saw a vast number which nobody could count. And who was this 144, this vast number? Those who have been sealed by God, set apart by God. Those who were able to stand against the wrath of the beast in these last days. So my understanding of these 144,000 
is that they are the redeemed of the Lord, the, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles uh, to times 10 to the power of three, the number of completeness, the number of perfection. This is the whole company of God, all of the Old Testament saints, all of the New Testament saints, from the very first saint out of the Garden of Eden to the very last saint that will be saved before the trumpet sounds and Christ comes back. They are included in this number of 144,000. Again, it's meant to be a contrast to those who bear the mark of the beast and are marked by the beast and follow him. These are the ones that are sealed by God with the name of the lamb on their forehead and the name of God on their forehead. Two companies of people, those marked by the beast, those sealed by God. Some suggest that the 144,000 is a subset of the redeemed. But after that, there's a lot of confusion. There's not a lot of agreement if you go that way. Some want to see the, the 144,000 as, as a, a group of Jewish believers at the end of the last days. Others look to verse 4 and say, well, 144,000 are a select group of uh, uh, an army um, that have been set aside by God. And you'll see in a minute that there's problems with understanding it that way. Others say that it's another subset that comes out of, or subset that comes out of verse 5. A group that, are, uh, that there's no deceit in their mouth and they're blameless. But as you can tell, I understand it to be the reference to the whole company of God. All the redeemed throughout the ages standing before God. And they're singing a new song. This is a great theme to follow through in the Bible. But it's a song that is referenced back to Revelation chapter 5 verse 9. Which again leads me to think that this is not a number. That it's a, it's a symbol. It's not a statistic. Because in Revelation chapter 5 verse 9 it says there's a group. Um, the saints, the people of God. And they're singing a new song. And what are they saying? Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Singing a new song. It's the same group. It's the same people. It's, uh, it's, it's the, the song of the redeemed, the whole company of God's people. Notice in chapter 15, if you want to turn there, in chapter 15, this group is referenced as singing the song of Moses as well as the song of the Lamb. That again reminds me and makes me think, well, this is a song of the whole company of the redeemed celebrating redemption. The song of Moses, I encourage you to read it this afternoon. It's an incredible song of redemption. People sang when they came through the waters of the Red Sea and then the waters came back upon the Egyptian army and drowned them all. And the people of Israel, led by Moses, sing this incredible song of redemption. And then we have the song of the Lamb, which is described in Revelation 5, 9. And so this is the whole company of God speaking forth of the victory that is theirs through the Lamb of God who has purchased their redemption. One of the most important questions that you need to ask yourself, are you part of the company that is characterized by the mark of the beast? Or are you part of the company that is sealed with the name of God and the name of Lamb on your forehead? Only two companies. Only two brands, only two seals, only two marks. How are you marked? It says that these 144,000 were with the Lamb. It's a great description, I think, uh, of both the, the redeemed company in heaven, but also describes the reality of those redeemed company here on earth as they're making their way towards heaven. And I think there's some help here in understanding, well, what does it look like for you and I to be numbered amongst that group? 
What's the evidence? What are the characteristics? Um, how, how, do you, how do you know if you're one of the 144,000? What, what describes them? Well, I think John gives us at least four hints. Or sorry, six hints in this text. The first one we find in verses 3 and verse 5. And it's simply this, that if you're a part of the 144,000, the 144,000 know that they are not their own. They know that they are not their own. They don't live for themselves. They, they, it's not all about them. The world is not circled all about them. But rather, they belong to another. They've been purchased by Christ. It says in verse 3, that the 144,000 are among those who have been redeemed from the earth. In verse 5, that they were redeemed from the human race. To be redeemed means to be purchased, to be bought. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and following, Paul describes the church and he says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. See, if you're sealed by God, if you have the name of God in your forehead, one of the things that begins to grow in you is this deepening awareness that you are not your own, that you have been purchased, that you have been bought, that you belong to another, that you have been ransomed, delivered, redeemed. They are his. So the first characteristic of those numbered among the 144,000 is they know they are not their own. The second is they know they are engaged to the Lamb. This is a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of, of faithfulness and of truthfulness and of fidelity. And we say, well, what does that mean? Well, you notice in verse 4 there where John's writing, it says, these who, it is these, referring to the 144,000, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. See what happens if you take that literally? Where are the women? Where are the married? It would be then just a reference to men who are not married. But you have all kinds of trouble then with the Bible because the Bible doesn't say that celibacy is better than married. Both um, celibacy and marriage are gifts from God to us. The Bible never elevates one sexual status above another sexual status. The Bible never says that you are more spiritual if you're married or if you're not married. The Bible says you're not more spiritual if you're male or female. So I don't believe that it can be a, a reference, a literal reference to 144,000 men who have never been married. Or some want to take it back to Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 9 and following to the warrior regulations of those who fought. But again, you still have men. They're married men, but they're men who abstain from sexual relations while they're at war. I'm not convinced that that is what John is getting at here. I think again, it's symbolic language. It's language that is, is, is meant for the church. It's, it's language that doesn't put down men or doesn't put down women. You see, in Old Testament, Israel is often spoken of as the virgin daughter of Zion. The whole people of God are understood to be the virgin daughter of Zion. They're also understood in other texts to be the virgin of Israel. They're described in other places as God's betrothed lover, the people of Israel. When she sins, then, as a people, she sins against her Lord. She sins against her God. When they play the harlot, they sin against God. That's the book of Amos is describing the people of God who is unfaithful as the virgin Israel to God. Paul picks up this same language in the New Testament. 
In 2 Corinthians 11.2, he says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. He's speaking about the church. He's speaking about spiritual realities. He's speaking here about spiritual faithfulness. So the issue that John is getting at here is those who are amongst the 144,000 are those who have not committed spiritual adultery. They have not slept around spiritually. They have not pursued this God and that God. They have not followed the beast and, and worshipped this image and, and given themselves to that way of worshipping in the world. They have not engaged themselves or become involved with the, the whore Babylon, which will look at the world system. They've not sold out in worship to the world around them. They've remained faithful to God. Those of us who are part of the 144,000 know that we are engaged to God. We are the bride of Christ to be kept pure until that day comes when the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place, which is described at the end of the age where our marriage is consummated with God or through with Christ. Loved ones, this is spiritual imagery. This is symbolic about the purity of the church, the purity of those of us among the bride of Christ who follow faithfully after Christ. The redeemed are not those that want to be caught in bed with the world. They want to be faithful lovers of Christ. They're not their own. They're betrothed to Christ. You, though, you who are married here understand that when you were betrothed, you set your eyes only on that person to whom you were engaged to. It's the spiritual reality that John is getting at here. Those who are sealed by God are spiritually faithful to Christ. Thirdly, I think it's number three, they're followers of the Lamb. It's just basic. They're, they're followers of the Lamb. That's what characterizes the people of God. The, those that know they're not their own. Those that are engaged to, uh, to, to Christ. They are followers of the Lamb. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Follow Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Obey Jesus. It says, And Jesus, calling the crowd to him with the disciples, said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We have that command repeated again and again throughout the Gospels, don't we? Follow me, follow me, follow me. Leave off that, leave off that, follow me. Make Jesus number one. We pattern our lives after Christ. His kingdom becomes our priority. We worship the lamb and not the beast. He is our example. We think about him, we consider him. The Lord is my shepherd, he leads me. I follow him. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, they follow me. I give them eternal life, they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Followers of the Lamb hear the voice of the Lamb. Go here, not there. Come after me, here, not there. We're characterized by who we follow. It's a silly picture, I know, but it, it just stuck in my head. Some of you have seen um, a mother goose or a mother duck um, when they've got their little chicks or their little gooselings or goslings, whatever you call them. And uh, the mother will go and the little ones almost follow in a line exactly where the mother go. The mother goes this way, they follow in a line. The mother goes that way, they follow in a line. The mother jumps over a stick, they all jump over a stick. The mother jumps in the water, they all jump into the water. It's a simple but I think beautiful picture of what it means to follow Christ. Wherever he leads, we follow. Fourthly, those that are amongst the 144,000 sealed by God know that their lives are an offering to the Lamb found in verse 4 again there where it says and it's these who follow the lamb wherever he goes these have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits to God and to the lamb 
I think sometimes the English language has caused us to misunderstand this word. I think there's some biblical texts, though, that also describe the word in this way. But the first way is we simply sometimes think of first fruits as the first of a harvest which is yet to come. And so it's just the first of a great amount. It's, it's first of a whole lot more that is to come. I'm not sure that that's the way that we're meant to uh, understand this. There's a, another way in which that word, um, uh, a the Greek word is used, and it simply describes an offering. It's just an offering. And so the people of God, the 144,000, are an offering to God. It's, we understand that all that we have comes to us from God. All that we are is to be offered up to God. There's nothing that is our own. There's nothing that we set aside. It's not that we give this little portion to God and then the rest is ours. It's not that God gets our Sunday and then we get the other six days. All of our lives are an offering to God. It's like Romans chapter 1 or chapter 12 where it says, I appeal to you therefore by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. That's what it means to be sealed by God. Our lives are characterized by uh, wholly giving up our, ourselves to God. Christian lives then, all of our lives are lived as an offering to God. The whole company of God's people are an offering to God. It's a beautiful picture of, of what God has given to his son, Christ, this offering. They want to be like the lamb I think this is number five. They want to be like the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. We just want to be like our big brother. You see it once in a while where a little sister or a little brother just worships their older brother. They, they want to dress the way they dress. They want to talk the way they talk. They want a car that they have. They just want to be like their big brother or their big sister. That ought to be what we want to be. Christ is our redeemer. Christ is our lover. We want to be like him. So they speak like Christ. They guard their mouths like Christ. There's no deceit that's found in their mouth. It's characterized by all the lies and deception that comes out of the mouth of the beast. Can't trust anything the beast says. He's a false prophet. Jesus, it says in Psalm, uh, Isaiah 53, they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Couldn't find anything against him. It was all true. It was all right. I wonder though if John is saying something a little bit more that as followers of the Lamb there, there's no lie in our mouths that we understand that we worship God and God alone because in Romans chapter 1 verse 25 it says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Rather than worshiping God they worshiped the, everything that God had created. They believed the lie. The people of God haven't believed the lie. They worship the creator God and they're blameless. I really don't think this means perfect. If it does, I'm in big trouble. I think that what it means, though, is that it means that they live lives of integrity, that perfection is their goal. There is a sense in which we understand, and I know this is a big word, but it's a biblical word, justification, uh, that, that, um, that declaration that God makes upon us through the blood of Christ that declares we are righteous, we are perfect. There's a sense in which in God's eyes, he sees us through Christ as perfect, but there's also a sense in which until we see Christ and until actually Christ comes again, we are imperfect. That's what sanctification is all about. We're putting off the old and we're putting on the new. We want to become like Christ. We want to become like him. We are taking on his image for ourselves. And so those who are part of the 144,000, they want to be like the lamb. They want to live double lives. 
They want to be characterized by living in the truth and by walking in the truth. Uh, John says that in, I think it's John chapter 2, little or loved ones, walk in the truth. That's what characterizes followers of the Lamb. Finally, they are singing a song of redemption. Certainly we can sing this song, The Other Side of Heaven. I think today, those of you who know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I hope you were singing a song of redemption. I hope that in the midst of all your week, whether it's been a great week or an ugly week, one of the things you know for sure is that you have been purchased. And if you have been purchased, you have a song of redemption to sing. And it's not a song that the angels can sing. I don't think the angels are intended here. Some believe it's the angels that are singing this. I can't see that because the angels haven't experienced redemption. They don't know what it feels like. They don't know what it, what it, it, what it is like to go from darkness to light. What it goes from uh, the power of sin to freedom from sin. To, to the guilt and shame of sin. To the freedom of the guilt and shame of sin. They don't have a clue. I was watching this morning um, a testimony. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a little secret. Probably two or three, well, maybe once a week or once a month. Um, as part of my just kind of thinking, I, I watch um, the Brooklyn Tabernacle podcast. I love the choir. I love the music. I know some of the theologies, maybe not always the way we go, but probably they'd say some of our theology is not always the way they go. That's probably not the best way. Anyhow, I like the Brooklyn Tabernacle. Um, Kath and I have been there, and uh, it was amazing. But... If you go and watch um, July 29th, there's a testimony that they have about two-thirds of the way through the service that they've done of a woman. I was in tears. I, I was in tears in my office um, as she shared about her life, what her life had been, and how there was a point at which she was in a strip club and she could look out a little window and there was a, a, a biblical literature store across the street and she decided that she was going to go in there because she had watched people as they would come and go from that store of all, all kinds of um, um, nationalities of young and old and male and they would go in and she said, I'm going to go in there. I'm going to ask for a Bible. She went and asked for a Bible and she describes how she began reading in the book of John and then and she describes the moment at which the light went on and it's just, it's and she now has a song of the redeemed. Only those who have been redeemed can sing that song. So it's not the angels, loved one. It's you and I who have been sealed by God and marked by God who can sing this incredible song. It's a victory of deliverance. It's a song of victory over sin. It's a song of victory over the beast. It's a unique song that only the lyrics um, can be known by you and I who have been redeemed. Amen. Amen. And so my question is, are you amongst the choir of the redeemed? That's what we sang, this great choir. Are you in rehearsals already for that day when we gather with all the 144,000 and together we sing a song that only those of us who have been purchased and redeemed can sing? Some of us sing at the top of our lungs. Some of us can't sing because we're choked up. Some of us are prostrate before the Lamb. But there's a lyric that we know that we've been redeemed. It's an incredible difference between those who follow the beast and will be forever consigned to eternal suffering and those who follow the lamb and will forever worship him in heaven above. I want to end with a psalm, just reading a psalm. It's a beautiful psalm, Psalm 96. Listen to it as we read the word of the Lord together. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. 
Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works amongst all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equities. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. Father, we come before you today. And there is no more an important question to ask than whose mark do we bear? By whom are we sealed? Are we characterized as those who are marked and set aside for worship of the beast? Or are we characterized as those who are marked and sealed by the Lamb? Oh, Father, would you bring rejoicing to those who know they are amongst the 144,000? Father, would you bring terror to any here who know they are among those marked by the beast. But then would you give them hope to know that they can look to the Lamb and find redemption and salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.